Well, if you will, take your Bible and turn with me to Philippians chapter 4. Again, man, it's good to see you on a holiday weekend. And um, we're going to be moving back into our study through the letter of the Philippians. We're getting close to finishing. We'll finish, uh, Lord willing, July 4th, and then we'll move on into a new series, the latter part of the summer. The believers who make up the church we know to be a unified body of individuals who are one together in Jesus Christ. See, the church is perhaps the most diverse organization or diverse groupings of people that the world has ever known. In all of history, there's never been a a people or an organization like the church where it's so diverse. Think about it. All genders are present. All ethnicities are present. All generations, all socioeconomic levels, all trades, all hobbies, all personalities, people from all different backgrounds are gathered and collected into the family God, into the church, and are one together. The church is a collection of peoples from all different walks of life, unified around one common thing. Do you know what that one thing is? It's Jesus. You see, the gospel is what unifies us as believers. You, if you were to take a, just a peek around you this morning, you would see a multi-generational church. You would see people from different backgrounds and, and all kinds of diversity here. Yeah, we're predominantly the same ethnicity, but we also live in a county that's predominantly the same ethnicity. But we are extremely diverse. And yet we gather around, we rally around one common flag, that is the Lord Jesus Christ and his gospel. Merrill Tinney articulates this unity within diversity. Listen to what he says in his work on the gospel of John. He says, within the church of historic Christianity, there have been wide divergences of opinion and ritual. Unity, however, prevails wherever there is a deep and genuine experience of Christ. For the fellowship of the new birth transcends all historical and denominational boundaries. Now listen to what he says here. Paul of Tarsus, Luther of Germany, Wesley of England, and Moody of America would find deep unity with each other, though they were widely separated by time, by space, by nationality, by educational background, and by ecclesiastical connections. What, what Tinney he is saying here is all of these men, and you might not know some of those men, but these are great church leaders of all history. And all of them have the same thing in common. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, that is what unifies. One of the things I love so much about being able to go overseas, and I long to go back overseas and, and to go on short-term mission trips, Lord willing, that will happen this fall and later into the spring. One of the things I love is that we can go to a place where we don't look the same, we don't talk the same language, we don't do anything the same, we definitely don't eat the same, and yet we have one common thing, Jesus and his gospel. And we're brothers and sisters, and we're connected through that unity. So it's the gospel that unifies the church. We are brought together in unity by the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when you think about that and when you understand that, you also are going to understand that there's nothing the enemy would love to do more than to bring disunity and disharmony to the Lord's church. He wants to destroy the unity that we enjoy. And the enemy's crafty. The enemy's meticulous. The enemy plays for keep. He's going to work to disrupt the unity in the life of the Lord's church. And in many ways, he operates the same way cancer operates in our own bodies. 
You know what cancer is. You know how cancer works. It's a collection of cells within the body that multiply without any checks on growth whatsoever. And that, that multiplicity, that, that growing happens there rapidly, spreading throughout the body. And what cancer does is it chokes out the life of normal cells. The body has a defense mechanism. It's the white cells, but the body won't attack the body in most situations. And so those white cells, who are the guardians against foreign invaders, will not attack the body's own mutinous cells, those cancerous cells. And so those unchecked mutinous cells can come from any part of the body. It doesn't matter what organ. It could be the brain, the liver, the, the stomach, the bladder, the blood, the skin. Cancer happens on all forms. And those white blood cells won't attack. And so they continue to multiply and multiply. Each of those cancerous cells is healthy. It's functioning. But it's disloyal, no longer acting in regard to the rest of of the body. The enemy works like cancer. He seeks to destroy the unity the church enjoys as the bride of Christ. And one of the ways he does so is through disruption among God's people in the form of disagreement. See, church, we are, as I said earlier, one together in Jesus Christ. The enemy is seeking to, to disrupt that, to destroy that. And since we are one together, if we're not careful, even because we live in this fleshly body, we, we war against that all the time. If we're not careful and, and if our, uh, our disagreements are left unchecked, we will fall into disunity. You know, I came across this interesting um, description of this, and I'm going to share it just because you guys have poked fun at me by my euphemisms lately. Like when I say, uh, you're as lost as a goose in a hailstorm. I mean, nobody here seems to know what that means. Like, that doesn't make any sense. That's the point. It doesn't make sense. That's why you say it. But here's what, dis, here's what uh, disunity looks like. Um, we can look like two chickens tied at the legs and thrown over a clothesline. They may be united, but they do not have unity. You, you concur with that? I don't know if you've ever... I've never seen two chickens tied together, thrown over the clothesline. It look pretty comical, to be honest. But I can imagine what that would look like. Yeah, they're unified. They're together, but they are not in unity with one another. And so Christians, we need to work hard through our disagreement because division in the body not only damages the health of the church, but it also affects the work of the gospel through the church into the community and around the world. And so let me just set this up. I made a statement uh, Monday when I was doing some study and outlining the text. And, and usually I don't go social media on, uh, on sermons week in and week out, but I made a post there, but also made a, a little side note about that. We are looking at this text not because we as a church are experiencing disunity and, and church fights, right? We're not, we're not experiencing that. I believe we are healthy. I believe we are unified. We are simply going verse by verse through the letter of Philippians, and we happen to come to this point. So we're addressing it. We're looking at it. We're going to learn from it because we know that we're prone to walk Away. We're prone to be in disunity because that's where our flesh is always driving us. So we must contend for the gospel and the sake of unity in the church. Paul here is offering advice, offering help to a church that's dealing with this issue. This is what we're going to see, and it's a help for us 
as well. Hopefully, a proactive help for us as a local church. So look there, Philippians chapter 4. Let's read the first three verses. Therefore, Paul says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Erodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. You know, as we've studied through this letter, uh, working verse by verse, what we've learned about the, the, the church there in Philippi is that it was a great church. It was a powerful church. It was a wonderful church. We would look at it today and say, man, they are impressive. There's an impressive disfavor of God resting upon them as a local church. And as we think about that, we need to also understand that even great and impressive churches struggle at times. There are many times that uh, we will go to a conference, whether it's an annual meeting of our state convention or an annual meeting of our national convention or a conference of certain thing, and, and we go there, and they will have logistical problems, they'll have technical problems, and I always lean over to whoever's with me and be like, boy, it's good to know that we're not the only ones who have those problems. Right, Steve? We're not the only ones who have those issues. And so that's minor stuff. But it's also good to know that we're not the only church, the only people that would struggle with sin or with aspects of sin. Here's a church that was struggling with sin. Here's a church who needed to hear the word of God spoken into their lives. They needed correction. And Paul's offering it to them. He's writing to encourage them. Uh, that's what I love about Paul. He was stern. He was strong. He was to the point. But he wasn't beat you over the head with a brick. He was more there to encourage, to point you in the right direction, and rebuke when necessary. And so he writes to encourage them to maintain basic Christian commitments and to be on guard against an array of dangers. We've talked about this. He's laid out this, this concept or this this uh, danger of temptations coming from outside the church, temptations coming from within the church, things that would draw their hearts, draw their affections away from where they needed to be. And so here in verse 1, what does he exhort them to do? He says, stand firm. Stand firm in the Lord. It, it, verse 1, as we know, it says, therefore, it means it's a transitional type of verse. It's pointing back to what's previously being said. It's setting up what's going to come after it. And so the apostle here wants the church to keep living the Christian life faithfully. Man, we need to live the Christian life faithfully. You never need to stop, never need to rest on our laurels. We always need to be pressing forward, holding firmly the, the gospel, holding firmly the doctrine of the faith, and yet moving forward with Jesus. Paul also desires to see this church walk in the way he's going to describe in the rest of the letter. And we're going to get to that in the next few weeks. But this morning, we're going to deal with how to work through disagreement. Anybody ever had a disagreement? Some of you are not smiling, laughing, or holding your hands up. So you're perfect. You just set out. We'll talk to you another time, right? No, we've all had disagreements. Some of you had disagreements this morning. Uh, it's funny how it happens on Sunday. Maybe the worst time of our week is with our family is on Sunday mornings as we're trying to prepare our hearts to, to worship the Lord with the church. We know about disagreements. 
Uh, before we discuss the elements of disagreement and how to work through it, though, I, I want to just kind of briefly, if we can, talk about who is in this passage. Two individuals are mentioned, Herodia and Syntyche. And Paul here is entreating, he's urging them to resolve a matter between them, a, a matter of disagreement that they are fighting over. Let's just put it that way. We don't know much about these women. In fact, we know very little about these women or the cause of their strife. Uh, we do know that women played a prominent role in the early church, just as women play a prominent role in today's church. And these two seem to have been influential. Uh, they seem to have been uh, players on the, the big scale. Paul says that they are partners with him in the gospel, along with Clement and, and some other people. And so they seem to be influential in their role in the church. They're co-laborers in the work of the gospel, but we can only speculate as to what the issue that was that pitted against them. But it happens. You know, Southern Baptists, we celebrate what we call the Lottie Moon Christmas offering, and, and we celebrate the life and the ministry of Lottie Moon, right? We also, as Southern Baptists, celebrate and receive an offering around Christmas time called the Annie Armstrong Easter offering. Those two ladies were counterparts in the work of the gospel of Southern Baptists. Here's what most people don't know about those two ladies. They didn't like each other very much. Now, I don't know the full ramifications of what their feud was. I've read on it a little bit, but they really didn't care much for one another. And those two ladies that we hold up as Southern Baptists to say, these, later, these ladies were partners in the work of the gospel. I say that just to simply say that this can happen in the church. It does happen in the church. It's something we should never gloss over. It's something that we should never push to the side. We should always work for reconciliation, but it happens. Probably what was going on here was some element of disagreement over leadership, whatever that might have been. And so in speaking to this growing division within the church, Paul calls out these two ladies, and he does it by name. Can you imagine? These are letters Paul writes, and other uh, authors write these letters. They send them to the church, and as the church gathers, guess what happens? They read the letter. So you've got the church at Philippi, I don't know, a couple thousand people sitting there, and the messenger is reading the letter from Paul because they want to hear about his, his uh, experience and what's going on with him there in Rome as he's under arrest, as he's awaiting trial. They want to hear about what's going on with Epaphroditus. They've heard he's been sick. So they're expectantly sitting there listening to the letter as it's being read, and all of a sudden, as you get toward the back end of the letter, two ladies who don't like each other, one's sitting over here and the other one's sitting over there. And the messenger says, I entreat Eurodia and Syntyche to resolve the issue. Well, that would have been an awkward moment. Everybody's like, <laughs> um, okay. Here's what else we probably know about what's going on there. Eurodia had her people, and Syntyche probably had her people. It was probably more likely a growing division within the church. Paul speaks to it. He exposes the sin and calls them to reconciliation, calls them to agreement in the Lord. Paul also calls on believers to come alongside them, to aid them in this reconciliation. So with that background, let's talk practically about working through dis disagreement and bring some application. I want to give you first three realities of disagreement. Three realities of disagreement. We 
have experienced this probably ongoing in our life. Here's what I want you to, to, to keep in mind. Number one, it takes place among believers. Disagreement takes place among believers. Contrary to what you may think, that when you come in the relationship with Jesus, your life and everyone else who knows Jesus doesn't become perfect. These two ladies were genuine followers of Jesus Christ. That's what Paul indicates here. They've labored with him in the gospel. I would say that he's also including them in his depiction of those whose names are in the book of life. They are genuine followers of Jesus Christ. On top of that, they're pillars in the church. These are just not nominal people who show up occasionally on Sundays to worship. These are ladies who are there every single day. They're, they're serving, growing Christians, and yet there's something between them that's not right. Disagreement happens among believers. And so we should not be surprised when believers disagree with one another. It, it, disagreement has affected the church since its inception. I mean, Paul himself was in disagreement with Barnabas, and they pitted but they butted heads to such an extent that they parted company. John Mark went with Barnabas, that's who they were arguing over, and Paul took Silas. And yet they continued in the work of the gospel. I believe later reconciled. And so it's always been a part of the church. It's a natural part of living in a fallen world. It's a natural part of being finite, of being human, of not knowing every single thing. You see, being a Christian does not mean that all Christians will agree on everything every single time. That's not going to happen till glory. It's commonly said that in the company of two Christians, there's going to be at least three opinions, right? That's just the way we are as human humans, as, hu as humanity. And so disagreement then, in and of itself, is not bad. Here's what's bad, what we do with the disagreement. When we disagree with someone, it's not that we have the disagreement that's the bad part. It's what I do or don't do with that disagreement. If I allow it to affect how I love that person, how I'm affectionate toward that person, how I receive that person, how I do or do not talk about that person, that's where the bad or the good comes into place. Here at Red Lane, we lay it out like this. We talk about agreement by saying that in the central beliefs, we have unity. Essential beliefs like the gospel, like the virgin birth, like the inerrancy of scripture, things like that are essential beliefs. In that, we will have unity or we cannot have fellowship. As brothers and sisters, if you disagree with our position or the, the Bible's position on the gospel, the Bible's position about an empty tomb, the Bible's position about the Bible, then we cannot have fellowship as brothers and sisters. I can love you and accept you and, and be affectionate to you as a human, but I cannot have unity with you as a brother and sister if we do not fundamentally agree on the essentials of the faith. You understand? On non-essential areas or non-essential beliefs, we talk about having liberty, right? There, there are non-essential beliefs. You say, what are those non-essential beliefs? Well, the, the second coming of Jesus is a non-essential belief. Now, it's important, but you don't stake your, 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 your fellowship on that. We're not a church that believes a certain eschatological position, a certain end times position. I differ than probably 90 plus percent of our church in the way that I believe it will pan out. And you still allow me to be your pastor, right? 
We, we, we can have liberty in some of those non-essential areas. In all of our beliefs, we talk about how we're going to show charity. We're going to love the other regardless. We may disagree, but we're going to do so with grace. So don't be alarmed when there's disagreement. Now, second reality, and I need to hurry this morning. It should not negate love and affection for others. Disagreement should not negate, negate love and affection for others. Paul here is addressing those in Philippi as his brothers and sisters. If you look there in verse 1, you see that. In other words, who's he talking to? He's talking to family. He, he refers to them as his beloved. He's talking about his brothers and sisters. He did not allow the disagreement to change his love and affections for them. You say, well, Paul's not in the midst of this disagreement. He is too. He, he helped plant this church. He's the spiritual father of this church, seeing his children at odds with one another affects him. And he could have been so upset with them that he says, I'm just done with you people. That's not what he does. He calls them brothers and sisters. He talks about how much he loves them, right? When we disagree with others, it should never negate our love and affection for them. Instead, we ought to, like Paul, plead with them, plead with the other. We should speak to the issues between us or between others with truth and clarity. We should never waver in our affection for people. I love the fact that Paul doesn't pull away. I love that it didn't allow him to pull away or he wasn't going to allow the church to pull away from one another. And we shouldn't do that either. Even when there's major doctrinal differences, we should still be able to love and care about the other, right? I mean, if we, if we, going back to those essential beliefs, we may not be able to fellowship as a brother and sister, but I still should love you and be affectionate towards you as a human and seek with all of my heart and all of my desire to win you back to the faith, win you back to the gospel, rather than write you off and strike you off, strike you out. Number three, I gotta hurry. So much more I wanna say about that one. It threatens to harm the church's testimony. One of the realities of disagreement is that it, it threatens to harm the church's testimony or witness. And so Paul's exhortation here in, in verse 1, in light of the, all that's been said, is to stand firm, to endure, and, and never give up the Christian walk. He, he shared the hardships. If we go back and remember all that he said in this letter, he has shared the hardships that he's faced for the sake of the gospel, including Christians in the church uh, speaking against him, preaching against him, using his imprisonment to kind of uphold and bolster their own personal ministry. He knows firsthand what it feels like to be disappointed in people. He's experienced all of that. He, he knows the consumer mentality of Christians. Man, it, can you imagine Paul in today's world, in America, the consumer mentality of the church? Now, let's just be honest. We shop churches. What do you have for my children? What do you have for my teenagers? Uh, what do you have for, for, my, for my family? What do you have for this? Whatever niche we have, we shop churches like that. We don't shop church. Well, man, what do you believe about the gospel? What's the word of God? Pre how's it preached? Well, what is your position on evangelism? We're very consumer-driven in the American church. Paul, I think, understood that on some level. And yet he never allowed it to affect his love and affection for the people of God. Never allowed it to threaten his walk with the Lord. He was, in fact, contending for the church's testimony. He knew that when churches are in disagreement with one another, it harms the witness, right? It harms the witness of the world that's watching. And the world is always watching. 
It, it disturbs me greatly to, to hear of churches who are fighting because I know it's not just happening inside the house. Here are two things that we know that's going on when the church is squabbling. The devil is in the corner laughing and cheering it on. And the world out there is laughing and shaking their heads. I knew they weren't any different than us. I knew that everything they said was just nothing but religion. And then we're in here in the church fussing and fighting with no care whatsoever for the sake of the gospel. Now, does this mean Christians have to agree with one another all the time? No, it doesn't mean that. Uh, agreeing all the time on everything is an impossibility. But what it does mean is that as a Christian, you should be able to disagree without being disagreeable. With love and affection, still be brothers and sisters in the Lord. It's having a different opinion or position without being nasty or even militant about it. That's three realities of disagreement. Let me give you three practices of agreement. So that's more of the negative. Here's the positive, proactive side. Number one, commit to loving others. If you want to walk in agreement, it begins with you being committed to love. I'm going to love someone regardless. Look what Paul says there in verse 1. Therefore, my brothers, could also be translated brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, for my joy, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown. The language Paul's using here leaves no doubt about his feelings for these people. Uh, he, He regards them as family. He Guards them as people he loves dearly. He, he has endeared himself to them. He's committed to them. It's portrayed in this desire, right? He says, I long for them. See, when you love somebody, there is desirous energy that moves you toward that person. Rather than walking away, rather than just kind of cutting the tie and moving on, Paul is moving toward them. Love always is accompanied with desire. I want to ask you just a series of questions. What do you think through this? How often do you dismiss and write people off when there's a disagreement? Think about that. In your own life, not just in the church, but in life in general, how often are you prone to dismiss and write a person off over a disagreement? Why is it so easy for people to terminate a relationship over that disagreement? It's another way to ask that question. Why is it so, free, so easy for us? Why do church members pick their lives up and leave a church when their feelings get hurt or they have a squabble? It happens often in church life. I'll be honest, somehow we've been a little bit, um, let me just say it this way, it doesn't happen at Red Lane as much as it's happened in other churches that I've served. Let me put it that way. But I've seen it so many times over my 20 plus years in ministry where if there's a disagreement, if there's a squabble, if there's something that a person or a family doesn't like, what they do is they just pick up their ball and they go to someone else's playground. Rather than staying there and working out the issues and agreeing together in the Lord. Man, if we're family, then it ought to be that we shouldn't just pick up and leave so easily. Could it, could it be that love had never bonded them to the other party? And that's why we leave, and that's why we cut relationships so quickly. I mean, think about it. We're talking about dangerous and destructive things here. How do you cut a piece of the body out and it not damage the whole body? I'm just using Paul's language here. He talks about the church being the body of Christ. And if I cut part of the body off, does it not affect the whole body? And yet we as Christians, then and now are quick to say, I'm done with them. 
and we run to the next people. Or we don't even go to another people. We just say, I, I'm just, I don't need to be in church to be a Christian. You're right. But really, the only person I can think of off the, off the top of my head that was like that, and it was okay, was the dude on the cross. And I don't think you're on a cross about to meet your death. So if you read the New Testament, what you see there is you need the body of Christ. You need the body of Christ to speak into your life, to help you to grow. You need the body of Christ to do the work of the gospel together. We are a communal people, going back to what we were talking about last Sunday. So if you want to begin to chart a different course, one that walks in agreement with others, commit to love others with no strings attached. Love them regardless of how you feel about what they believe or how they live their lives. Number two. Stand on the commonalities you share in the Lord. Man, we, we have a tendency to focus on our disagreements. We have a tendency to focus on our differences so much more than our commonalities, right? I mean, what is our culture doing right now? We're all about our differences. We need different color skin than me. I, I can't even talk to you because you're a different color of skin than me. Where do you see that in the Bible? I'm thankful there's coming a day when all people, every tribe, tongue, language, and people group will stand before the throne room of heaven and give glory to God and worship him forever. There is unity even in the midst of our diversity through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And yet we as humans, as fleshly people, are prone to separate and keep people at arm's length when God is always seeking to bring us Together. And so look what Paul says here. I entreat Erodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. In the Lord. That's where their agreement was to be. So there's instruction here for these ladies to resolve the matter that is divided them. Let's begin there. Paul's not saying, uh, you kind of just live in your two camps. No, he says, you ladies get together and work it out. Don't allow yourselves to keep moving away from each other, come together. See, the best solution for resolving differences is to work the problem out between one another. Jesus would tell us in Matthew 18 that if there's a, an issue you have with a brother or sister, you go to them. You don't go to someone else first. Hey, have you heard so-and-so, what so-and-so did? Could you believe that so-and-so said this about me? Could you believe that so-and-so has done this to me? That's not what Jesus would tell us to do. That's not what Paul's telling these two ladies to do. He's saying, you two ladies, calling them out right there in the church. I love that part of it. Man, this makes them uncomfortable as all get out. You two ladies, right there and right here, get together. Talk it out. D.A. Carson has some good words to say about this. He says, where there are disagreements of principle, argue them out. Now, that's not yelling. That's just talking them through. He says, take out your Bibles, think things through, find out where you're disagreeing, and be willing to be corrected. Identify what takes absolute priority and begin with that. Focus on what you have in common. Make sure you agree over the gospel. Work hard to develop perfect agreement on matters of greatest importance, like the gospel, the word of God, the glory of Christ, the good of God's people, the beauty of holiness, the ugliness of sin, especially your own sin, he says. Personal differences should never become an occasion for advancing your party, for stroking bruised egos, for resorting to cheap triumphalism, for trimming the gospel by appealing to pragmatics. Focus on what, not, what unites you. The gospel, the gospel, the gospel. That's what D.A. Carson says about disagreement in the church. 
And so Paul here calls these ladies to agree in the Lord. This phrase, agree, he uses often in his writings. It carries the idea of having the same mind, thinking the same thing. Paul here does not leave their commonality up for debate. So what are they to rally around? The Lord. They're not to rally around the fact that they're from the same town. They're not to rally around the same the fact that they come from the same educational background or the same side of the tracks or whatever uh, a commonality we may run to. They're to rally around Jesus and start there. Man, if we're brothers and sisters, can we not rally around the gospel that we share together? So Paul doesn't leave anything up for debate. These ladies are to agree in the Lord. Jesus and the redemption they experience through the gospel is the basis for that commonality. And like Carson says, and like he makes clear, disagreements do not have to result in division. If we will stand in agreement on essential matters such as the Lord, his gospel, the acceptance of the Lord in our lives, then we can take our Bibles out and lovingly discuss whatever issues are seeking to divide us. Man, if we just operated like that, rather than jumping to conclusions, oh man, I sent a text to them, I didn't reply back, and uh, it's been a while. Maybe they were sleeping. Maybe they had something more important they're going to get to you. We jump to the conclusions so easily about things today. Rather than thinking the best about them, rather than taking the high road, rather than believing the good of the other person and just kind of waiting, being patient. We will fly off the handle and think the worst about an individual. And, and, and even what makes it even badder there is, is to take it and say, rather than going to the person and dealing with it, man, I, I thought you were ghosting me or whatever the issue is, we will go and talk to someone else about it. Paul says, no, 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 you get together. You work it out together and begin with the gospel in your lives. Number three. Come alongside those in disagreement to find a holy and healthy resolution. Verse 3 here, Paul calls for an intervention. Uh, He's calling the church to get involved. Here's where it makes the rest of us uncomfortable. If the disagreement among people in the church doesn't already make the church uncomfortable, the fact that Paul calls the church to get involved makes it that much more uncomfortable, right? We would rather just kind of set this one out, stay on the sidelines, and watch than to get involved. Why? Because ministry's ugly. Ministry's dirty. Ministry is hard. You got to roll your sleeves up. You got to get involved. You got to get down there in the mud with people. And so Paul here alerts the church to the problem. He's urging a person that is referred to as true companion to get involved. Now, we don't know who this true companion is was, it could be actually a a proper name for an individual whose name means true companion, though that's probably unlikely. But regardless, Paul knows who this person is, and the church knows who this person is. And Paul is saying, Eurodia and Syntyche, you to get together, and I need you, brother or sister, true companion, to also get involved. Be a mediator. Be a source of reason. Be a source of love. Be a source of of unity, bringing these sisters together in the Lord. So Paul calls on this this brother or sister to play the role of a peacemaker. He doesn't lay out a certain pl- he does not lay a certain plan out for the church, but he does say get involved, and he leaves it in the hands of the peacemaker and the local church itself to come alongside these warring ladies. I, I love that idea of come along. 
side. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women. I believe, if I remember correctly, in the Greek, you see the same word there that, we, that Jesus uses of the Holy Spirit. He is the helper. Come alongside and help the paraclete. That's what this peacemaker is to do, to come alongside these two ladies and move them to where they need to be to find unity. Three things I want to point out in regards to this, this uh, idea of, of coming alongside the, uh, the people in, at war with one another. There's no really better way to say it. First of all, Christians should not let fear of meddling keep them from seeking reconciliation. I think we as Christians don't want to be, well, first of all, we don't want to get involved. Let's just say that. And so we will use this as an excuse. Well, I don't want to get involved because it's meddling. I don't want to meddle in their business. You're not meddling if you're coming to help. If your complete motive, your sole motive is to help this brother get in, in, in unity with this brother or these sisters get back unified, if your sole reason for engaging in the issue is to bring unity there, it's not meddling, it's sanctification. It's not meddling, it's reconciliation. That's what we're to seek there. So we should not let the fear of quote-unquote meddling keep us from seeking reconciliation among brothers and sisters. Number two, Christians should welcome church involvement when seeking reconciliation. You should seek and expect the body of Christ to get involved. We are part of the body, and your sin affects the whole body. A couple years ago, I was, I mean, this is going to be a gross illustration, but for the sake of the illustration, you need this, right? A couple years ago, I got an infection in my thumb, and I won't tell you why, but uh, just suffice it to say, I got an infection in my thumb, and it got this nasty infected head on it, and, and um, I think one day I was kind of, I bite my fingers all the time, I'm weird like that. It helps my immune system. Um, in a corona world, it helps your immune system to chew on your fingers. So I was, I was binding with my, my finger, and, or with my t- teeth, and, and it popped in my mouth. Gross. Uh, yeah. Told you it was gross. Gross, 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 gross. Don't ever do that. Live and learn, right? And, uh, and so I needed that, though, because it was, it was hurt. You know when you get something like that underneath your skin? It's such a relief for that pressure to come off. I just wish it hadn't come off that way in a different way. Here's the point I'm trying to make. I needed pressure to be relieved in my thumb because it made it hurt so bad. And what else helped? What what, what brought the aid to my thumb? Another part of the body. (laughs) The wrong part, but part of the body, right? (laughs) Today in our lives as church members, when we're in a disagreement with one another, it will greatly help us if we will allow and even ask another person member of the body to come alongside and help us. We should never keep that as arm links. We should never um, avoid that. We need to be much more open in the life of the church, in our life in the body of Christ, to the help of other people. The problem that we have is a sin problem. We want to keep our sin to ourselves. We want to keep that closet closed. We want to put on this facade that everything's okay. We also have another problem there. We're Americans, and we can do it our own way. Right? I don't need somebody to help me in my life. I don't need, I am John Wayne. I can pull myself up by my own bootstraps. And the reality is you can't do squat on your own. You need someone else. Paul's making it clear to these two ladies, 
you need to get together and work this problem out, but you're probably not going to be able to do it yourself. So I need you, brother or sister, to kind of come on this, and I need you, Church of Philippi, to watch over this, this situation and to steward this situation to bring unity there because these sisters need it, and the gospel witness among the community definitely needs it. How do we work through our, our, our differences, our disagreement? We love, we work toward each other, and we're willing to receive help. And here's the third aspect of that. The other aspect of that third point. We as Christians in the church are willing to help. Don't turn a blind eye to sin. Don't turn a blind eye to disagreement in the church. Be willing to roll your sleeves up and get involved. Don't, I'm going to say this carefully. Golly, it's 10, 12 already. Story of my Sunday life. It's a weekend. It's a holiday weekend. We ain't got anywhere else to go. You can't go to the river. It's too cold. Here's what I, I'm gonna, I got to say this carefully. Myself or the other elders or our staff doesn't need to be the first person you call when you know that there's a disagreement or an issue within the church. It probably should be with the person you recognize there's a disagreement, Right? I'm not the arbiter of every disagreement in the life of the church. I will come alongside and help as best I can, and I often do. But man, if you're not willing to first take that initial step, then call to me is, is not as good. Take the first step. If you're close to this situation, get involved in that. Do it with love. Do it with patience. Do it with grace. We must agree in the Lord. The Bible tells us here that Eurodia and Syntyche were followers of Jesus. See, there was a point in their life where they had turned from sin, repented of it, and placed their faith in Jesus. Paul tells us their names are written in the book of life. And we talk about working through disagreement among the church. You cannot begin that process if you are not first reconciled to Jesus. Paul's asking these people to be reconciled to themselves, but they were first reconciled to Jesus. This morning, as we're about to... Um, Observe the Lord's Supper, the meal that reminds us of how Jesus has reconciled us. You can't observe that meal. You can't be in fellowship with God. You can't be in fellowship with God's people until you are reconciled to Jesus. So I, I don't know. We're, uh, Ricky's going to come and play in just a moment. We're going to have a time of, of response where we sing, and hopefully the Lord's speaking to our hearts, and we're going to respond to that. And today, if you have never placed your faith and trust in Jesus, I would encourage you to do that today. For us as believers, here, here's the response for us. Is there anything in your life that would hinder you from celebrating and observing the life of Jesus and what he did for you through this meal? You got anything against a brother or sister? Anybody got something against you during this time of response? I would encourage you to deal with it now. I mean, if it's in this room, just go over to them. I know we don't have long, but I'm sorry. Can we talk after this? Man, it would be awesome if, if things like that begin to happen in our lives, where we just like, I want to be an open book before the Lord. I want to be an open book before others. I don't want anything to be sinful in my life. I want to live with palms up. I want to be right before God. I want to be right before others. That's how we're supposed to live. 